Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. One of the most interesting facets of our evolution as a civilization is the impact on moving from the age of industrialization to what many have referred to as the information age. We all see the many impacts of this around us every day, as personal computers have not just become part of our life, but for many, even their livelihood. Microprocessors power virtually every information appliance in our home, from our cable television boxes to our TiVo to our cell phone, and even the management of the complex systems in our automobiles. The creation of the Internet and, perhaps equally importantly, the technology standards that make up our web browsers and the means by which packets of data shuffle around the world at high speed and low cost is yet another key evolutionary step in this process. There are, of course, many technology, labor-saving, and sometimes mixed blessings of the new technologies that have emerged from this. On a positive side, our creative powers have been leveraged as never before through the availability of software to write, collaborate, make digital music, and even distribute these podcasts around the world. On the mixed blessing side, we now have cell phones that we carry around virtually everywhere, and which, at least for those of you listening to this podcast, most people assume you must have and must be willing to be interrupted by virtually any time of the day. Along with all this, however, is yet another, perhaps even more critical transformation of our globe, and that is the rise of the powerful technology development centers around the world, often in direct support of the information technology that we just talked about, but without question birthed only because of the availability of that technology. We've all heard the stories of the rise of software innovation in India, unique overseas manufacturing hubs in places such as Ireland, and major new entrepreneurial technology hubs in places such as Singapore. Many might have popped up on their own, but there's no question that they share common threads. A powerful vision for how to leverage our worldwide cornucopia of technology for the local good, a means of marketing broadly to the outside world, and strong strategic partnerships. The result is a growth in regional development with a massive worldwide impact in a way the world has never seen it do before. We're talking here about far more than just outsourcing. In a previous role I had as the SVP of Visual Systems at Silicon Graphics, for example, resources we had in place around the world, from Australia to multiple locations in the United States to Germany and even to Tel Aviv, were often used around the clock to help provide continuous support to customer needs for our many high-end visualization products installed virtually anywhere. Thanks to the Internet, accessible data repositories that any of our teams could access, a strategic approach even to project management, and strong voice and email communication systems, we were able to coordinate everything from development to post-shipment problem-solving with shorter times to market and faster responsiveness than ever before. 
I absolutely did not think of this as outsourcing, but as getting the best talent possible on any business issue we needed to address to be successful. These resources were in part developed directly by our company, of course, but many of them were there because of the very regional development initiatives that I just mentioned. It is all about linking business and government, leveraging technology, and connecting virtually any place on the globe with the world economy. To talk about how this whole concept of how regional innovation and regional wealth is being created in our new information economy, we are very pleased to have Jeff Saperstein, a global business consultant in strategic planning, advertising, and market research, and a well-respected expert in this area. He has advised a wide range of companies, from Levi Strauss to Wells Fargo, Nabisco Brands, American Express's travel-related services company, and American Honda. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Creating Regional Wealth in the Innovation Economy, published in 2002. We are very pleased to have Jeff as our guest this week. We spoke to him at his offices in Mill Valley, California. Jeff, I want to thank you for joining us this week on Stranova. Thank you, Brad. I'm very, very happy to be with you. I'd like to start our conversation today with talking about the whole concept of regional development as it relates to business. What do you think are some of the keys to how regions have evolved as successful business creation communities and maybe some lessons for modern times about that? Well, that's a great question. If I may, I'd like to step back for a moment and put some framework on this. And let's think about regional economic development as opportunities with technologies that have emerged for individuals and institutions and regions and whole sectors and that this is all interrelated. But if we step back and think about a conceptual framework for this, there was a Canadian professor named Marshall McLuhan who in the 1960s kind of predicted all of this with the idea of a global village, media as extensions of man. Media is the message and the idea that we would perceive reality and that we would live our lives very differently based on our use of technology. And, and he was very prescient in predicting all of this. And there was kind of a neat idea that came from John Markoff in his book, What the Dormouse Said, and he's the technology writer for the New York Times. And he pointed to two directions that technology could have gone over the last 30, 40 years. One was artificial intelligence, which was basically big robots and mainframes and kind of removing the human factor. And if you think about 2001, A Space Odyssey, and HAL, the computer, and this, you know, taking over the human course of history. That was one view. And the other was augmentation, which came very much from McLuhan and others, theorists, including Doug Engelbart, who was the developer of the mouse and graphic user interface in Silicon Valley. They looked at technology as augmentation. Technology were tools that if you gave individuals access to information, if you gave them the tools through technology to access all information and be able to link with one another, both individuals and collective groups and organizations would be able to use technology in their own ways to solve their own problems. And the idea of open source, the idea of Googling, the company, the concept of online searching, Linux, you go on and on, the entire revolution of technology was really based on this idea of augmentation and enabling individuals to take it as they wish. Now, this idea relates directly to the development of regions because in the industrial economy, 
Countries like Germany or France or the United States, think about GM and the paradigm of the auto industry. These were hierarchical structures built very much on kind of a command and control. And indeed, successful regions were built on command and control, that everything was centrally planned and that you were able to coordinate all of this in a top-down way. That's pretty much fallen by the wayside. And those regions and those industries that have been able to take advantage of technology with the idea of individuals and groups working together in a decentralized fashion has been the paradigm for success. Now, what does that mean in terms of regional economic development? It means the rules have changed and that those sectors and those regions that seemed to dominate in the 20th century are not quite doing as well as the regions and the sectors and the individuals who are able to work with knowledge, work with intellectual capital, work with technology, and commercialize and capitalize technology. And that's kind of an underpinning to all of this about regional economic development. Now, as we look at then getting to the specifics of your question, the keys to making a region successful are that the sectors of the region work together. And of course, the sectors are composed of individuals within institutions. So the government sector, be it the state, the federal, the county, the municipality, individuals within those sectors have to be able to be working well with the private sector, the nonprofit sector, universities, the professions such as law and accounting and finance. When you look at these sectors working together, in a way that enhances the competitiveness of a region for regional economic development using information and technology, that is really a necessary condition for any region to be successful. It is not the only thing that you need, but it is a necessary condition. If you go from the premise of the sector and the individuals within sectors being able to work well together and be able to synergistically provide competitiveness for a region, then you have to have the transparency of the finance. You have to have enforceable laws and patents and intellectual property rights. You have to have infrastructure for bandwidth, and you have to have good communications and airports and roads and the infrastructure. And these are the next necessary factors. And then if we go to another level, Brad, we are looking at something that we found in uh, when we wrote the book, Creating Regional Wealth in the Innovation Economy, that there seem to be qualitative factors that go across all of these regions that are in addition to what I just mentioned. So one of those are that attitude drives accomplishment, that a reverence for knowledge, openness to new ideas, flexibility to adapt, and capacity to work with people from other cultures are all assets for this regional wealth creation. So for example, in countries like Ireland, the attitude of being able to work with outside people is deeply rooted in the culture. In countries like Germany, where the cultures have not been as open and entrepreneurial, there's a growing recognition that a societal attitude change is necessary for Germany, which has far more resources than Ireland, to succeed. So attitude to working with new ideas and people outside of your culture is one of these essentials that's a qualitative factor. With respect to the issue of Ireland, I am interested in exploring a bit on how Ireland would have even gotten started 
doing some of these things because Ireland was definitely not seen as a regional technology center until obviously fairly recent times. It was very isolated on the global stage and at best was in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons. So it's obviously evolved dramatically and, and how did it go about that? Openness is one thing, but there's other steps that are involved. Well, if you think about the evolution of Ireland, probably in, in the 60s, they made a critical decision to join the EU and allow their economy to be following rules of the EU and have access to the EU. So joining the EU was an important factor, not only for Ireland, by the way, but if you look at countries like Spain, similarly, a very poor country, if we remember it as a third world country, they've also gone through similar evolution. So Ireland joined the EU. They've gone through periods where they've had higher unemployment, and it hasn't been just a straight line. But they decided that they were going to train the people in their economy to work in the service sectors, like the call centers that we believe the Indians are doing now, the Irish were doing in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. So they were doing low-level manufacturing. They were doing service call centers. They were involved with providing multinationals with access to Europe, but working out of Ireland. They had a young population. They spoke English. They were fairly well-educated. And so the next step after joining the EU and following the EU regulations, and, and the EU, by the way, invested a large amount of money into the Irish infrastructure. Most people don't recognize that the EU was very, very important in the role of Ireland, at least in getting it up to speed so that it could compete as a region. And so you had a situation by the 1980s, early 90s, where Ireland already had multinationals operating out of Ireland for the low-level manufacturing and service sectors. And then as the technology sector started to take off, Ireland was in a very good place to do that. Their government decided through the IDA, which is the Irish Development Agency, that they were going to actively pursue companies like Microsoft, Intel, IBM, and they selectively brought these companies in, created the operations, and the Irish government was very entrepreneurial in making the right conditions work for these companies, setting up in Ireland, and then using Ireland as a base for operations. The key to then understanding the success of Ireland, it was phrased to me in a very funny way by one of the Irish government people. We were able to say to the American multinationals, look, you can get access and all the benefits of the entire European Union, but you get to work with us instead of having to work with the Germans or the French bureaucrats. You know, you work with Irish who are entrepreneurial. You work with us who are, you know, business is not the enemy. And this worked very, very well. So if you look at what happened in Ireland from 1995 to, say, 2001, 2002, their economy really shot through the roof because they had spent 20 years in establishing credibility and skilled workforce working with American multinationals so that they really had the government, labor, universities all working together as sectors on behalf of the U.S. multinationals to make them successful in their operations in Ireland. And that has just created enormous opportunities for the Irish. Well, I believe you also were, just as I brought in that last question, beginning to talk about some potential other countries and other regional centers. Uh, I'll let you continue on that one at this point. 
Well, in addition, if we look at the Irish model of being a great location for multinational operations, getting access to a larger market, we can then look at Taiwan, which is clearly one of the most successful regions of the world as it relates to regional economic development, that they took a different tack. And the, the Taiwanese had built the Shinshu Tech Park and have devoted hundreds of millions of dollars to creating a tech park and an industry that really is a subcontractor for the semiconductor industry. And they, over a period of time, converted much of their economic development from low-end manufacturing to high-end foundries and really a high-tech subcontractor for the multinational. So whereas Ireland was a center for multinationals to access Europe, Taiwan was a center for multinationals to subcontract major parts of their work, particularly in the semiconductor industry. And that had really accounted for great success for the Taiwanese, who now are subcontracting much of their work to the Chinese, and they are continuing to be a major player and continuing to link to other regions and invest in other regions where the manufacturing is lower, but they're very, very sophisticated in the industries that they focused upon. And incidentally, when you're looking at Taiwan, the students in the Taiwanese universities study their textbooks in English. So a high school student already is fluent in English, and knowing the English language is very important in the high-tech economy. And those students in their universities are already integrated into the tech parks so that the student workforce in Taiwan is extraordinarily sophisticated and ready to take their place as a skilled workforce for multinationals working in Taiwan. Good example of integration of sectors. Another country that has done very well is Israel. Now, Israel has a unique situation in that they have developed a high-tech economy for military. And they have done quite a bit of joint development with the United States in military. And some of their people have taken that technology and transferred it for civilian and uh, purposes. So if you think about Israel, which has the third largest number of companies listed on the NASDAQ after the U.S. and Canada, and it's a small country of about 6 million people. The Israelis have done very well in information technology, in medical devices, and this comes from their work in the military technology area transferred for civilian purposes. So, for example, digital signal processing with satellites for answering service really came out of the Israeli militaries. Everybody that uses answering services, that was an Israeli innovation. Instant messengering, either with Yahoo or MSN or AOL, all instant messengering started from a company, ICQ, in Israel. Heart stents, the medical area, was an Israeli innovation. So what's key with Israel is that if Israel, which is a small market, could never be able to capitalize on these technologies if they were only servicing the Israeli market. What's important to understand about Israel is that everything was externally focused in terms of plugging into a much larger economy, primarily the United States and the EU, and being able to have Israel as a R&D laboratory similar to Silicon Valley 
in which the ideas are developed in Israel, the technology is developed in Israel, and then it is marketed and distributed and financed, really, through much larger markets. And so those three regions, Ireland, Taiwan, Israel, are very good examples of some of the principles of regional economic development. One other thing about some of the regional centers emerging now, that same way as Ireland did, Clearly, in Asia, when we look at China and India and South Korea and Singapore and some areas of Japan, there's major technology with Wi-Fi and Web 2.0 and, I mean, the newest technologies are really coming out of Asia and that is clearly going to dominate in the next 10, 20 years in terms of new product development as it relates to Wi-Fi, for example. Smaller areas in Europe, uh, the UK uh, amazingly has done a turnaround, and the UK is one of the best entrepreneurial areas, certainly in Europe, the highest ranking region for access to capital for entrepreneurs. So London is probably a great place to be. Places like Estonia and Czech Republic, and in Latin America, Costa Rica. And there are many, many regions that are emerging, linking into the global economy. And if you don't want to just focus geographically, if you're looking demographically, I think there's going to be a great amount of entrepreneurship unleashed by women in places such as Russia, Japan, China, and in the third world. And women are taking to technology and creating very, very interesting businesses either on eBay or as subcontractors, or just being able to provide social services in their own communities. So this is a fairly optimistic trend. Let me move to a question that does relate to that, and that has to do with a country which, to me, has been having some lagging in the past, and I recognize I have listeners in Japan as well, so I want to be cautious of that, but that is the economy of Japan. And it does seem to be lagging in some respects behind some of the other regional centers, not just Taiwan, but obviously the juggernaut of China, as well as what's happened in India, both in the nature of the innovation and the impact on its technology around the world. Now, I I don't mean to overgeneralize because Japan is still a strong center of innovation in its own right and all, but are there lessons Japan might want to think about that directly relate to some of the concepts you've talked about? Well, it's interesting that you brought up Japan because I've actually done work with the Japan External Trade Organization, JETRO, and I'm aware of some of the efforts of the government over the last five years to really turn that around. And uh, the Prime Minister Koizumi has really done some extraordinary things that are great lessons for Europe in terms of focusing on this. Japan actually has had a turnaround in the last several years, and if you look at industry by industry, Certainly no one needs to make a case for Japan in the auto industry where their technologies, not just with the hybrid electronic vehicle, not just with the Prius, but the way that their production, very, very innovative processes, and whereas General Motors and Ford are on a downward spiral, Toyota and Honda are dominating the world in terms of technology as it relates to the auto industry. That if you look at a region such as Aichi in Japan, which is where Toyota City is, probably one of the leading regional economic areas of the world in terms of their adoption of technology as it relates to probably the largest industry in the world, which is the auto industry. The Japanese have made a concerted effort to fund the areas of technology and science, such as nanotechnology, environmental technologies, biotech, 
semiconductor software development and that they are funding huge amounts of money in there. Now, so one thing I want to say is that Japan is also investing in China, as Taiwan is. So when you look at China, the Japanese are in China probably in a bigger way than anyone else is in terms of taking advantage of the lower wages. The Japanese are certainly there, and they are certainly players. Is that the downside for Japan and Europe relative to the United States is that we have a very good system, both on the federal level and the state level, of having people go after research grants, and we encourage our university professors and our medical institutions to actually come up with products and come up with innovations and that they get the benefit from that. The Japanese and the Europeans have not done that. And so if you look at the tens of thousands of patents that are generated in the United States for commercial application, much of that comes from university professors or students or people who are working in hospitals and universities, and a large part of our innovation and entrepreneurship comes from a grant-based system that allocates money to entrepreneurs. The Japanese really need to do that, and they recognize that, and they are way behind us in terms of capitalizing on their university intellectual property. However, in terms of the other companies, the sectors, Japan has really turned around, so I wouldn't look at them as laggards in the same way that, say, Germany is, where they still have a long way to go. Maybe then a next question that pulls us into some of the other concepts you have talked about. Within the whole area of the technology business, as part of your own work, you've also talked about the impact of what you call communities of practice, which is related to but a bit different than what you've been talking to so far. I wonder if you could explain the concept and how it's worked in the past to both grow technology businesses regionally and globally. Well, communities of practice really come from an application of the Internet in a very intriguing way. As opposed to communities of practitioners, which are kind of trade associations where you people are kind of focusing on their own business. Communities of practice are groups that may be in the same company, may be in the same industry, may be in different industries that really are working together to solve problems using augmentation in the way that Doug Engelbart had envisioned it. And if you think about Wikipedia, which is now emerging in terms of every subject, having a Wikipedia where people are working together to amass knowledge, that's a good example of communities of practice. Something that is happening on a regional basis is the emergence of formal and informal networking. Certainly, if you look at Silicon Valley, this is a major way of people meeting one another and exchanging ideas, creating companies, moving technology ahead. could be an informal group of Taiwanese engineers who get together on every Monday morning, or it could be a very sophisticated organization such as the Indus Entrepreneurs, Thai, EIE, which has 40 chapters all over the world and puts together entrepreneurs and software or IT developers and venture capitalists. So we're looking at the emergence with communities of practice of an accelerated speed of learning that is moving every field ahead much, much faster. And it's a very exciting development, which is being done at the university level with universities having communities of practice. The government is doing it. The private sector is doing it. And so it's a way of information sharing, knowledge development, and group problem solving that is accelerating throughout our society. 
Brad, there was one thing I did want to talk about, and that is a lot of people think about tech clusters, you know, places where technology seems to be developing, such as Silicon Valley or Route 128 uh, outside of Boston or San Diego, where biotech companies are, as that the tech clusters are the ones that get the greatest benefit from missing opportunities in technology. Well, surely the places that are developing the technology are doing very well. But what is more significant are the regions and the industries that are adopting technology. They don't have to be the inventors, but they do co-develop the technology so that it increases productivity and enables whole new industries to come about. And tech clusters and tech adopting regions are the ones that are getting the greatest benefit from all of this. Let me give you some examples of tech adoption across sectors that have made a real difference. If you think about our federal government with e-filing for the tax returns, I think last year about 60 million tax returns that were filed, well, that creates an enormous efficiency and convenience with government. It really re-engineers government in a way to make it far more efficient. Smart or fast cards for transportation, such as in Hong Kong or Singapore, where people are not using tokens, they're using fast cards, and it is enabling transportation of huge numbers of people. There are millions of people who are commuting into Hong Kong or Singapore to be able to make transportation far more efficient, not by changing the trains, but by changing the way you pay and how those transactions are done. Think about online banking and, and what effect that has had in terms of efficiency on making banks, uh, enabling them to do things that couldn't have been done before. Now, I teach at San Francisco State University, and we're certainly not at the cutting edge of adoption of technology, but we are moving more and more to technology as using the Internet as just the administration basis for the school. And imagine, Brad, the difference in teaching between giving students a project-based learning assignment where they're using online databases that the university subscribes to and that they learn how to do searches across all information sources to do their reporting. And then they write their reports on their word processors and then they upload it for us to read and that there's no paper involved, but they're learning the skill sets for database search, and then compare that with much of teaching in places such as Italy or in places in Asia or in Latin America, where professors are still getting up and reading their notes to the class to a large lecture hall in which the students are literally writing with a pen and paper, just as we did 40 years ago, the notes that the teacher is reading from a lectern. That's not really teaching. That's just reading. And we are seeing a revolution in each of these sectors, as I've mentioned, where technology adoption and the application of technology to actually solve problems or to make systems more efficient is where the real benefit of technology clusters and technology adopters are. Well, one thing, too, that is also true is this isn't just about the so-called technology companies. You've mentioned that in some of your discussions that things that we normally think of as low-tech companies, such as, say, Kimberly Clark or Procter & Gamble, are leveraging some of these concepts in ways that we would not perhaps imagine. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. Well, Procter & Gamble is a very good example. Procter has a system called Connect and Develop, and their vice president of innovation, Larry Houston, wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review of March 2006 in which he talked about there are 7,500 scientists and researchers within Procter & Gamble, but there are about a million and a half scientists and engineers all over the world that are in complementary disciplines. And through the Internet and using technology briefs and companies like Nine Sigma, which connects innovators with companies, Procter & Gamble is able to accelerate product innovation and new product ideas by utilizing outside resources so that their goal is about half of their new products and product enhancements will actually come from outside of Procter & Gamble employees. This is a revolution in product development and innovation. And if a company such as Procter & Gamble, which is the largest consumer packaged goods company in the world, is adopting this, then there are great adaptations for many, many companies. Let me give you a kind of fun example. I have a son who runs a day camp here in Marin County named Stephen Cates Day Camp. They have a system where the parents buy vouchers, and if a parent wants to buy 20 slots for their children, they can come in and use those slots any time. They don't have to be contiguous. It doesn't have to be each day, one following the other. They can use two one week, three another week. At the end of the summer, if you haven't used all your vouchers, you get a refund. The only way they could do that is if they developed a system and applied technology to be able to have the parents prepay and then utilize it as they want and then know that they will be able to get a refund at the end of the summer. That creates a competitive advantage for a day camp and convenience for parents that revolutionizes the camping industry in an interesting way. So there are many, many examples, both in large companies and small ones, of how the use of technology is creating great opportunity for serving your consumers better and thereby being more profitable. Well, it's a lot of excellent concepts. As we're getting close to the end of our time, I wanted to see if you had some ways that people wanted to learn more about some of these concepts. Are there some resources you'd recommend they look into to learn more or to perhaps explore further? Well, if they're interested in technology as it applies to regions and understanding how regions are using technology, I would recommend that they look at the Bay Area Economic Forum, which is for the San Francisco Bay Area. They write reports on our region. And you can see away some of the metrics that are used and how you can measure a region. Another is the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation out of Kansas City. It's K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N Foundation. They fund entrepreneurship, and they have a lot of studies on entrepreneurship which would be of interest to your listeners. Certainly the best organization in the San Francisco Bay Area to kind of look at all of these trends is Joint Venture Silicon Valley Network, which is an NGO, a nonprofit that issues reports and tracks certain trends in Silicon Valley. If you're interested in how to see how entrepreneurs and researchers get plugged into multinationals, the company named Nine Sigma for Global Innovation Networking. You can join it, and it'll post technology briefs. And I think if you're looking at books, Clayton Christensen, the Harvard Business Review is the publisher. Clayton Christensen 
wrote a book called Seeing What's Next. He had written The Innovator's Dilemma and The Innovator's Solution, and his latest book is Seeing What's Next, Using the Theories of Innovation to Predict Industry Change. It's a very good book to kind of get a sense of where all of this is going. The Future of Work, How the New Order of Business Will Shape Your Organization, Your Management Style, and by Thomas Malone, who I believe he's out of MIT, and also that's produced by the Harvard Business School. And if our listeners want to learn more about you directly, Jeff, where should they go? Well, they can go to my website, creatingregionalwealth.net or .com. They can also see my background on my work and, and some of my publications, which have been really focused on marketing and technology and how marketing has really been changed with the use of technology. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining us this week on Stranova. It's my pleasure to be with you. When we talk about the cycle of innovation, what we're often referring to is how one technology innovation influences another, such as microprocessor technology enabling computer hardware developments, which in turn enables software to evolve to a higher level, and that in turn drives the need for even faster microprocessors. What is far more rarely discussed, even with all the books about outsourcing that are out there, is the sociological and geopolitical cycles that technological innovation can stimulate as our guest this week has made very clear. With a deep understanding of the essence of a technological innovation and its transformational power on an industry and region, along with a commanding strategic approach to leverage that power, countries and regions that only a few years ago were considered third world and doomed forever to be in the lower strata of economic wealth are now, very suddenly, rising up to surprise us all, as well as to enable every one of us to participate in the global economy they are generating both personally and professionally. The world is not just getting smaller, it's getting smarter too, it seems. For those of us in the Western world who inherited our business leadership status, it's time to prepare for an entirely new kind of world business infrastructure and competition. And for those of you listening outside of the so-called first world, maybe some of the ideas from this week's episode may stimulate thoughts of how you can leverage your own strategic regional wealth development initiative in the future. As our guest Jeff Saperstein has suggested, it is absolutely in your power to make that happen. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com. And be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at stranova.com or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408-849-4394 or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.